Chapters 1 and 2 of The White Cowl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The White Cowl by James Lane Allen. Chapter 1. In a shadowy, solitary valley of southern Kentucky, and beside a noiseless stream, there stands today a great French abbey of white-cowled Trappist monks. It is the loneliest of human habitations. Though not a ruin, an atmosphere of gray antiquity hangs about, and forever haunts it. The pale gleaming cross on the spire looks as though it would fall to the earth, weary of its aged unchangeableness. The long Gothic windows, the rudely carven wooden crucifixes, suggesting the very infancy of holy art. The partly encompassing wall, seemingly built to resist a siege, the iron gate of the porter's lodge, locked against profane intrusion, all are the voiceless but eloquent emblems of a past that still enchains the memory by its associations as it once enthralled the reason by its power over the placid stream and across the fields to the woody crests around float only the sounds of the same sweet monastery bells that in the quiet evening air ages ago summoned a ruder world to nightly rest and pious thoughts of heaven within the abbey at midnight are heard the voices of monks chanting the self-same masses that ages ago were sung by others who all night long from icy chapel floors lifted up piteous hands with intercession for poor souls suffering in purgatory one almost expects to see coming along the dusty kentucky road which winds through the valley meek brown palmers returning from the holy sepulchre or through an upper window of the abbey to descry lance and visor and battle-axe flashing in the sunlight as they wind up a distant hillside to the storming of some perilous citadel ineffable influences too seem to bless the spot here forsooth some saint retiring to the wilderness to subdue the devil in his flesh lived and struggled and suffered and died leaving his life as an heroic pattern for others who in the same hard way should wish to win the fullest grace of christ-like character perhaps even one of the old monks long since halting towards the close of his pilgrimage will reverently lead you down the aisle to the dim sepulchre of some martyr whose relics repose under the altar while his virtues perpetually exhale heavenward like gracious incense the beauty of the region and especially of the ground surrounding the abbey thus seems but a touching mockery what have these inward-gazing heavenward-gazing souls to do with the loveliness of nature with change of season or flight of years with green pastures and waving harvest fields outside the wall with flowers and orchards and vineyards within it was in a remote corner of the beautiful gardens of the monastery that a young monk father palamon was humbly at work one morning some years ago amid the lettuces and onions and fast-growing potatoes the sun smote the earth with the fierce heat of departing june and pausing to wipe the thick bead of perspiration from his forehead he rested a moment breathing heavily his powerful legs were astride a row of the succulent shoots and his hands clasped the handle of the hoe that gave him a staff-like support in front 
He was dressed in the sacred garb of his order. His heavy sabots crushed the clods in the furrows. His cream-colored serge cowl, the long skirt of which would have touched the ground, had been folded up to his knees and tied with hempen cords. The wide sleeves falling away showed up to the elbows the superb muscles of his bronzed arms, and the calot, pushed far back from his head, revealed the outlines of his neck, full, round, like a column. Nearly a month had passed since the convent barber had sheared his pole, and his yellow hair was just beginning to enrich his temples with a fillet of thick, curling locks. Had Father Palamon's hair been permitted to grow, it would have fallen down on each side in masses, shining like flax and making the ideal head of a saint. But his face was not the face of a saint. It had in it no touch of the saint's agony, none of those fine subtle lines that are the material network of intense spirituality brooding within. Scant vegetarian diet and the deep shadows of cloistral life had preserved in his complexion the delicate hues of youth, noticeable still beneath the tan of recent exposure to the summer sun. His calm, steady blue eyes also had the open look peculiar to self-unconscious childhood, so that, as he stood thus, tall, sinewy, supple, grave, bareheaded under the open sky, clad in spotless white, a singular union of strength, manliness, and unawakened innocence, he was a figure startling to come upon. As he rested, he looked down and discovered that the hempen cords fastening the hem of his cowl were coming untied, and walking to the border of grass which ran around the garden just inside the monastery wall, he sat down to secure the loosened threads. He was very tired. He had come forth to work before the first gray of dawn. His lips were parched with thirst. Save the little cup of cider and a slice of black bread with which he had broken his fast after matins, he had not tasted food since the frugal meal of the previous noon. Both weary and faint, therefore, he had hardly sat down before, in the weakness of his flesh, a sudden powerful impulse came upon him to indulge in a moment's repose. His fingers fell away from the untied cords, his body sank backward against the trunk of the gnarled apple-tree by which he was shaded, and, closing his eyes, he drank in eagerly all the sweet influences of the perfect day for nature was in an ecstasy. The sunlight never fell more joyous upon the unlifting shadows of human life. The breeze that cooled his sweating face was heavy with the odor of the wonderful monastery roses. In the dark green canopy overhead, two piping flame-colored orioles drained the last bright dewdrop from the chalice of a leaf. All the liquid air was slumberous with the minute music of insect life, and from the honeysuckles clambering over the wall at his back came the murmur of the happy, happy bees. But what power have hunger and thirst and momentary weariness over the young? Father Palamon was himself part of the pure and beautiful nature around him. His heart was like some great secluded crimson flower that is ready to burst open in a passionate seeking of the sun, 
as he sat thus in the midst of nature's joyousness and irrepressible unfoldings and peaceful consummations he forgot hunger and thirst and weariness in a feeling of delicious languor but beneath even this and more subtle still was the stir of restlessness and the low fever of vague desire for something wholly beyond his experience he sighed and opened his eyes right before them on the spire beyond the gardens was the ancient cross to which he was consecrated on his shoulders were the penitential wounds he had that morning inflicted with the knotted scourge in his ears was the faint general chorus of saints and martyrs echoing backward ever more solemnly to the very passion of christ while nature was everywhere clothing herself with living greenness around his gaunt body and muscular limbs over his young head and his coursing hot blood he had wrapped the dead white cowl of centuries gone as the winding-sheet of his humanity these were not clear thoughts in his mind but the vaguest suggestions of feeling which of late had come to him at times and now made him sigh more deeply as he sat up and bent over again to tie the hempen cords as he did so his attention was arrested by the sound of voices just outside the monastery wall which was low here so that in the general stillness they became entirely audible chapter two outside the wall was a long strip of woodland which rose gently to the summit of a ridge half a mile away this woodland was but little used into it occasionally a lay brother drove the gentle monastery cows to pasture or here a flock sheltered itself beneath forest oaks against the noontide summer heat beyond the summit lay the homestead of a gentleman farmer as one descended this slope towards the abbey he beheld it from the most picturesque side and visitors at the homestead usually came to see it by this secluded approach if father palamon could have seen beyond the wall he would have discovered that the voices were those of a young man and a young woman the former a slight dark cripple and invalid he led the way along a footpath up quite close to the wall and the two sat down beneath the shade of a great tree father palamon listening eagerly unconsciously overheard the following conversation i should like to take you inside the abbey wall but of course that is impossible as no woman is allowed to enter the grounds so we shall rest here a while i find that the walk tires me more than it once did and this tree has become a sort of outside shrine to me on my pilgrimages do you come often oh yes when we have visitors i am appointed their guide probably because i feel more interested in the place than anyone else if they are men i take them over the grounds inside and if they are women i bring them thus far and try to describe the rest as you will do for me now no i am not in the mood for describing even when i am my description always disappoints me how is one to describe such human beings as these monks sometimes during the long summer days i walk over here alone and lie for hours under this tree until the influences of the place have completely possessed me and i feel wrought up to the point of description the sensation of a chill comes over me look up at these kentucky skies you have never seen them before are there any more delicate and tender 
Well, at such times, where they bend over this abbey, they look as hard and cold as a sky of Landseer's. The sun seems no longer to warm the pale cross on the spire yonder. The great drifting white clouds send a shiver through me, as though uplifted snowbanks were passing over my head. I fancy that if I were to go inside, I should see the white butterflies dropping down dead from the petals of the white roses, finding them stiff with frost, and that the white rabbits would be limping, trembling through the frozen grass, like the hare in the eve of St. Agnes. Everything becomes cold to me, cold, cold, cold. The bleak and rugged old monks themselves in their ory cowls turn to personifications of perpetual winter, and if I were in the chapel I should expect to meet in one of them Keats' very beadsman, patient holy man, meager, wan, whose fingers were numb while he told his rosary, and his breath frosted as it took flight for heaven. Ugh, I am cold now. My blood must be getting very thin. No, you make me shiver also. At least the impression is a powerful one. I have watched these old monks closely. Whether it is from the weakness of vigils and fasts, or from positive cold, they all tremble, perpetually tremble, I fancy that their souls ache as well. Are not their cowls the grave clothes of a death in life? You seem to forget, Austin, that faith warms them. By extinguishing the fires of nature, why should not faith and nature grow strong together? I have spent my life on the hillside back yonder, as you know, and I have had leisure enough for studying these monks. I have tried to do them justice. At different times I have almost lived with St. Benedict at Subiaco, and St. Patrick on the mountain, and St. Anthony in the desert, and St. Thomas in the cell. I understand and value the elements of truth and beauty in the lives of the ancient solitaries. But they belong so inalienably to the past. We have outgrown the ideals of antiquity. How can a man now look upon his body as his evil tenement of flesh? How can he believe that he approaches sainthood by destroying his manhood? The highest type of personal holiness is said to be attained in the cloister. That is not true. The highest type of personal holiness is to be attained in the thick of the world's temptations. Then it becomes sublime. It seems to me that the heroisms worth speaking of nowadays are active, not meditative. But why should I say this to you, who as much as anyone else have taught me to think thus, I, who myself, am able to do nothing? But though I can do nothing, I can at least look upon the monastic ideal of life as an empty dead husk, into which no man with the largest ideas of duty will ever compress his powers. Even granting that it develops personal holiness, this itself is but one element in the perfect character, and not even the greatest one. But do you suppose that these monks have deliberately and freely chosen their vocation? You know perfectly well that often there are almost overwhelming motives impelling men and women to hide themselves away from the world, from its sorrows, its dangers, its temptations. You are at least orthodox. I know that such motives exist, but are they sufficient? Of course there was a time when the cloister was a refuge from dangers. Certainly that is not true in this country now. 
And as for the sorrows and temptations, I say that they must be met in the world. There is no sorrow befalling a man in the world that he should not bear in the world, bear it as well for the sake of his own character as for the sake of helping others who suffer like him. This way lie moral heroism and martyrdom. This way, even, lies the utmost self-sacrifice, if one will only try to see it. No, I have but little sympathy with such cases. The only kind of monk who has all my sympathy is the one that is produced by early training and education. Take a boy whose nature has nothing in common with the scourge and the cell. Immure him. Never let him get from beneath the shadow of convent walls or away from the sound of masses and the waving of crucifixes. Bend him, train him, break him, until he turns monk despite nature's purposes and ceases to be a man without becoming a saint. I have sympathy for him. Sympathy! I do not know of any violation of the law of personal liberty that gives me so much positive suffering. But why suffer over imaginary cases? Such constraint belongs to the past. On the contrary, it is just such an instance of constraint that has colored my thoughts of this abbey. It is this that has led me to haunt the place for years from a sort of sad fascination. Men find their way to this valley from the remotest parts of the world. No one knows from what inward or outward stress they come. They are hidden away here, and their secret histories are buried with them. But the history of one of these fathers is known, for he has grown up here under the shadow of these monastery walls. You may think the story one of medieval flavor, but I believe its counterpart will here and there be found as long as monasteries rise and human beings fall. He was an illegitimate child. Who his father was, no one ever so much as suspected. When his mother died, he was left a homeless waif in one of the Kentucky towns. But some invisible eye was upon him. He was soon afterwards brought to the boarding school for poor boys, which is taught by the Trappist fathers here. Perhaps this was done by his father, who wished to get him safely out of the world. Well, he has never left this valley since then. The fathers have been his only friends and advisers. He has never looked on the face of a woman since he looked into his mother's face when a child. He knows no more of the modern world, except what the various establishments connected with the abbey have taught him, than the most ancient hermit. While he was in the Trappist school, during afternoons and vacations, he worked in the monastery fields with the lay brothers. With them he ate and slept. When his education was finished, he became a lay brother himself. But amid such influences the rest of the story is foreseen. In a few years he put on the brown robe and leathern girdle of a brother of the order, and last year he took final vows, and now wears the white cowl and black scapular of a priest. But if he has never known any other life, he, most of all, should be contented with this. It seems to me that it would be much harder to have known human life and then renounce it. That is because you are used to dwell upon the good and strive to better the evil. No, I do not believe that he is happy. I do not believe nature is ever thwarted without suffering, and nature in him never cried out for the monkish life but against it. His first experience with the rigors of its discipline proved nearly fatal. He was prostrated with long illness. Only by special indulgence in food and drink was his health restored. 
His system even now is not inured to the cruel exactions of his order. You see, I have known him for years. I was first attracted to him as a lonely little fellow with the sad lay brothers in the fields. As I would pass sometimes, he would eye me with a boy's unconscious appeal for the young and for companionship. I have often gone into the abbey since then to watch and study him. He works with a terrible pent-up energy. I know his type among the young Kentuckians. They make poor monks. Time and again they have come here to join the order, but all have soon fallen away. Only Father Palamon has ever persevered to the taking of the vows that bind him until death. My father knew his mother and says that he is much like her, an impulsive, passionate, trustful, beautiful creature with the voice of a seraph. Father Palamon himself has the richest voice in the monk's choir. Ah, to hear him in the dark chapel sing the Salve Regina, the others seem to moderate their own voices that his may rise clear and uncommingled to the vaulted roof but I believe that it is only the music he feels. He puts passion and an outcry for human sympathy into every note. Do you wonder that I am so strongly drawn toward him? I can give you no idea of his appearance. I shall show you his photograph, but that will not do it. I have often imagined you two together by the very law of contrast. I think of you at home in New York City, with your charities, your missions, your energetic, untiring beneficence. You stand at one extreme. Then I think of him at the other, doing nothing, shut up in this valley, spending his magnificent manhood in a never-changing, never-ending routine of sterile vigils and fasts and prayers. Oh, we should change places, he and I. I should be in there and he out here. He should be lying here by your side, looking up into your face, loving you as I have loved you, and winning you as I never can. Oh, Madeline, Madeline, Madeline. The rapid, broken utterance suddenly ceased. In the deep stillness that followed, Father Palamon heard the sound of a low sob and a groan. He had sat all this time riveted to the spot, and as though turned into stone. He had hardly breathed. A bright lizard, gliding from out a crevice in the wall, had sunned itself in a little rift of sunshine between his feet. A bee from the honeysuckle had alighted unnoticed upon his hand. Other sounds had died away from his ears, which were strained to catch the last echoes of these strange voices from another world. Now all at once across the gardens came the stroke of a bell summoning to instant prayer. Why had it suddenly grown so loud and terrible? He started up. He forgot priestly gravity and ran, fairly ran, headlong and in a straight course, heedless of the tender plants that were being crushed beneath his feet. From another part of the garden, an aged brother, his eye attracted by the sunlight glancing on a bright moving object, paused while training a grapevine and watched with amazement the disorderly figure as it fled. As he ran on, the skirts of his cowl, which he had forgotten to tie up, came down. When at last he reached the door of the chapel and stooped to unroll them, he discovered that they had been draggled over the dirt and stained against the bruised reeds until they were hardly recognizable as having once been spotless white. 
A pang of shame and alarm went through him. It was the first stain. End of chapter 2